This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Eero. Never think about Wi-Fi again when you can have brilliant, hyper-fast, super-simple Wi-Fi system with Eero. And now the second-generation Eero is tri-band and twice as fast as its predecessor. For free overnight shipping, visit Eero.com, and at checkout, select Overnight Shipping, then enter FOOL. That's F-O-O-L, FOOL. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition, taped today on Monday, July 24th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on the phone is John Maxfield, Motley Fool contributing expert and all-around awesome person. How's it going, Maxfield? It's going great. How are you doing, Gabby? Pretty good. Um, It's earnings season, which, you know, always gets the, the blood hot. (laughs) <laughs> it does. It does. Although I'll tell you that, and I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, that um, bank earnings have thankfully returned to being relatively boring, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, I don't know how many times you said on this show that no news is good news in this sector. <laughs> Because when there's a lot of news, it's generally just really bad for everyone. It's never like, oh, yeah, there was an awesome merger, and now things are going to be easier. Or like, oh, hey, they've come up with new technology, and it's great. It's always like fraud, housing bubble, whatever it is. It's just always terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, And the other thing is that, I mean, it's funny, the financial crisis, for most people, the financial crisis is like you know a long time ago. Nobody really thinks about it anymore. But in the banking sector, it's still a major, major theme in terms of understanding these companies. And over the last you know nine years, earnings volatility has been you know the earnings have been very volatile in the sector, but they are now starting to like even out and just kind of uh, increase at a much more moderate uh, moderate pace. Yeah, which is good. And talking, ta- speaking of which, <laughs> listeners, you might have guessed today's show is about bank earnings because this is the financial show, and sometimes we do talk about banks. Um, so generally, this is a pretty solid quarter for banks. Yeah, I would say it was, it's a really solid quarter. You know, just to kind of go through a couple of the, the couple of the big banks that have already reported: uh, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, these are the biggest banks in the country, so they're really the, the most important, and they kind of set the tone for all the other banks. And all three of these banks, uh, I mean, they, they just earn an enormous amount of money. Wells Fargo earned $5.8 billion. Bank of America earned $5.3 billion. Uh, well, J.P. Morgan Chase earns o- over $5 billion. And I, I think it's, it, it's easy to throw out numbers like that and to kind of lose track of, like, you know, how huge those numbers are. But let me put it in perspective like this. There are only six companies on the S&P 500 that earn more than $5 billion a quarter. Three of those are technology companies. You have Alphabet, which is the holding company that over that, that owns Google. You have Apple, and you have Microsoft. But then besides those three, it's Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Bank of America. And I mean, they, they just make it. And, and then you can give one more statistic to kind of to hang your hat on in there. The average earnings quarterly earnings uh, in the last quarter on the S&P 500 was only something like $500 million. So bank, these big banks earn 10 times the average on the S&P 500. I feel like I should take a moment to like trash talk the other shows. Like, yeah, that's right. You hear that? Like, look how awesome banks are. We're super sexy, the banking industry. Yeah. Okay, that's it. I'm not very good at trash talking. We're going to move on from that and pretend that never happened. <laughs> um, so, like I said, generally pretty solid quarter. Um, a couple things to kind of take note of: um, net interest margin generally contracted. 
uh, long-term interest rates are down, short-term interest rates are up, which is why, Maxfield, do you want to explain how that works a little bit? Yeah, so the net interest margin, that's basically the yield that a bank earns on its portfolio of assets. So fixed income securities and loans. But it's the net yield. So you take, you have the yield on your assets, but then you have your funding costs. You know, you, they borrow money from depositors and they borrow money from institutional investors as well. So it's the difference between, uh, it's the net yield. So it's the difference between you know, what they have to pay for their, their funds and then what they earn on their assets. And as a general rule, the net interest margin is going to increase as interest rates increase and particularly as short-term interest rates increase, which they have done over the past you know, year, the Federal Reserve is, is boosting the federal funds rate. But the problem is that, well, that, that's good for banks because that means that they earn a higher yield on their loans. And really, and I've talked about this on the show in the past, one way to think about banks is that they're just stores that sell money, and the price that they sell money at is the interest rate on the loans. And as interest rates go up, that means the price of those loans go up. And because banks sell loans, that means, and, you know, as, you know, if you sell something at a higher price, you're going to make more money. So that's a good thing. But the problem is that in the second quarter, long-term interest rates were on average lower than the first quarter. So you have, you know, higher short-term interest rates, which is good, but lower long-term interest rates, which kind of works against that. And when you when those two things kind of are you know you put them in you and, and they kind of spin around in the in, in kind of in, in the earnings washer if you will it kind of spit out lower net interest margins for a number of the big banks uh, on a quarter by quarter basis net interest margin was down at J P Morgan Chase uh, and it was also down at at Bank of America and I'm sure it was down at other banks too but those are those are the ones that I um, that I just checked yeah so and I I just want to put something out there net interest margin is something that you always want to keep an eye on um because it's one of the keys to figuring out if um earnings are stable and if if the if the bank is doing a good job of underwriting because if you see really uneven net interest margins it generally means that the bank isn't doing a great job of underwriting so like a little bit of a decrease no big deal. If you see wildly varying ones over like the course of two years, then that's that's when you should start worrying. Yeah, and, and yeah, and it, that's probably. I, I think you're probably um, kind of mixing words a little bit because the underwriting is that's going to be in your credit risk area. But to your point, what it means is that you know the more loans that a bank has in its port- asset portfolio portfolio relative to securities the higher its net interest margin is going to be because, and that is where the underwriting, like the underwriting volume as opposed to underwriting quality uh, comes into play. So when I was talking about underwriting quality, one of the issues with net interest margin, or one of the things that feeds into net interest margin is the interest rates that they're lending at and lower quality loans generally have much higher um, interest rates. Right, right. Yeah, so if you're seeing like wide variations, then that might be what's going on and maybe that's a bank to steer clear from. Yes, I would say that that is, that is probably accurate. And the other thing that we saw in the quarter was that, so at these really big banks, they're, they're known as universal banks. Again, we talked about this before in the, in, mm-hmm. on the show in the past. And universal banks have both the commercial banking operation, which is taking deposits and making loans, but they also have investment banking operations, which are um, you know, M&A type of you know, advising on M&A type stuff, bringing companies public. Um, but another aspect of an investment bank uh, is a trading operations. So these large banks serve as market makers for institutional investors, and trading income fell relatively dramatically in the quarter. JP Morgan Chase is down 
by 19% um, in their fixed income division, which is the biggest trading division of these banks. And the reason that that falls, trading income is, is really interesting because it's extremely volatile, but it, it goes up and down because it goes with the market. So when there is a lot of uncertainty in the market and you have these institutional investors stepping back from buying and selling securities, you have these trading incomes fall because these banks earn commissions on trading income. So that's what we saw in the second quarter. We saw volatility really low. We've talked about that, too. You know, one of the things that we're seeing is the VIX, which is a measure of expected volatility in the market. It's just at historically low levels right now. And so we're seeing those, the, that, the impact of that coming through on the trading results um, from these big banks. Yeah. Um, it's And it's, it's interesting. I think that trading revenue kind of fluctuates for a variety of reasons. I, I believe last quarter it was up, and it helped spur bank earnings. This quarter it's down. And that's right. just kind of the way it is. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and trading revenue, they're extremely hard to predict. But the, the one positive thing about trading revenues is that typically, depending on where the, the trading is trending in the quarter, the banks will come out relatively early and give guidance on that. And they had given guidance early in the quarter. The trading revenue was going to be quite a bit lower. So that, that wasn't an unexpected thing. Let me point one other thing that, uh, that we're, we're seeing with the banks right now that I think is something that, that investors um, should keep their eye on, and that is loan growth. So over the past, so between 2012 and 2016, loans in the commercial and industrial loans, the so C&I loans in the United States, which those are uh, really the, the most important loans that are made in, in an economy because they're made to businesses, and businesses hire people if that helps them uh, employment and, and all these other things. Well, C&I loans were growing in the United States on a year-over-year basis by between 10 and 11 percent between 2012 and 2016. But just recently, we have seen a dramatic drop in the in the rate of loan growth in C&I loan growth in the country. In fact, in May, it was down at something like 2 percent. And we're seeing that that same trend, obviously, that shouldn't be a surprise that we're seeing that trend in these big banks because they have so much market share of loans in the United States. But uh, loan growth um, is uh, moderating at J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, it is moderating. It was actually loans, the, the loan portfolio at Wells Fargo is actually down slightly on a quarter-by-quarter, quarter-over-quarter basis at, at, at Wells Fargo. And we're seeing the same thing, that, that same moderation in the trend of uh, loan growth at Bank of America, which loans at, at Bank of America increased only 1.4%. So this is something that, that, is, that you should keep, everybody should be keep thinking about and kind of keeping their eye on, because if loan growth slows or stalls, or even the worst case, starts to um, uh, go down on a year-over-year basis or a quarter-by-quarter basis, because loans are the fuel for an economy and for economic growth, that could be an early indication that, that the economy is, 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 starting to, uh, is starting to decelerate. Yeah. I mean, and we are, at, we are in the midst of a bull market that's lasted way longer than anyone expected or really that it had any right to last. Um, but there are a couple things that are probably driving that loan growth deceleration. And, you know, um, Keep in mind that these are just educated guesses, um, but interest rates are slightly up, you know, so loans are slightly more expensive for businesses to take on. Um, additionally, there is a lot of uncertainty about the U.S. economy right now and U.S. economic policy. Um, so I think those are those are probably two things that are feeding into this decelerating loan growth. 
Yeah, and th- another thing to keep to keep one's eye on is that you know at you know the economy goes through cycles, and you 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 made this point that we've been in this long bull market for a significant period of time. We haven't had a recession since the financial crisis, and and typically you know recessions come and go every five ten years, right? We just haven't seen one recently. But one of the signs, another sign of, a, of, a, of a, an impending recession, and again, you cannot predict whether recessions are going to happen, right? And, and there's no reason that you really try to, but you can look at economic indicators and certainly get a sense for the direction of the economy. And, and another thing that you'll see is that loan default rates will increase in a recession, right? Because there's higher unemployment, so people will make less money, so they're not able to service their loans. And then the same thing happens with businesses. If their customers are, you know, if their customers are spending less money at them, then those businesses have, have problems servicing their loans. And we're starting to see that up to, you know, problematic, um, or let me put it this a slightly different way. We are starting to see concern in the bank industry around a number of really important categories of loans, and those are auto loans um, and commercial real estate loans. And so if those type, if those things also, if we start to see an uptick in write-off, credit write-offs in, in areas like that, and then if you couple that with the deceleration in loan growth, it certainly is not a good sign for the, for the bank industry in particular, and it, it, it doesn't... doesn't um, it doesn't speak well for the, the direction that the economy is going in right now. Yeah, no, it's definitely really interesting. It's something to keep an eye on. We're not forecasting doom and gloom here. Although, if there is doom and gloom, then let it be noted that we were right on Monday, <laughs> July 24th, 2017. Um, but if there wasn't, then totally forget about this segment. Uh, with that, this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Eero. The single router model just doesn't work for our increasingly high bandwidth world. It's simple physics, like light waves, Wi-Fi waves don't go through walls well. Imagine asking a light bulb in your living room to light your master bedroom. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. Simply download the Eero app on your iOS or Android device, and it'll walk you through each step of the process. It's quick, easy, and painless. Current Wi-Fi routers are really tough to manage and optimize. The Eero app lets you manage your network from the palm of your hand, so you'll know how many devices are connected at any given point, as well as the internet speed that you're getting from your service provider. You can also easily create and share a guest network. Euro is protected with state-of-the-art WPA2 encryption, and because it controls the hardware and the software for your entire network, it ensures that you're always secure. Since traditional routers don't push software updates to their customers, they are left vulnerable to cyber attacks. Euro updates automatically so that not only you have the latest features, but the latest security at all times. Euro has incredible customer support. It's something that the company has really invested in. Now, they're excited to introduce the second-generation Eero and Eero Beacon. Eero home Wi-Fi systems started in early 2016. Since then, they've learned from hundreds of thousands of systems, making them smarter, faster, and more reliable. The new Eero second-generation and Eero Beacon allow a customer to build a Wi-Fi system that's more perfectly tailored to their home than ever before. They offer more speed and range in the same high-quality, elegant design that people have come to expect. With the addition of a third 5 gigahertz radio, the second generation Eero is now tri-band and twice as fast as its predecessor, which lets customers do more simultaneously in every room of their home. And with the addition of a new thread radio, Eero can connect to low-power devices such as blocks, doorbells, and other sensors and more. Expanding your coverage in any room is easy with Eero Beacon. Simply plug it into a wall and you're covered. You can add as many Eero Beacons as you want. If there's an outlet, there's Wi-Fi. 
I've been using Eero and it's been great. It was super easy to set up. Um, I don't know what the walls in my apartment are made out of. Probably cinder blocks, except there's mice, so probably not. I have no idea, but Eero has finally helped me get Wi-Fi signal in my room and in the living room, which is great because the router is in Christine's room and it's just, it's just really terrible at 2 a.m. when I'm trying to eat some ice cream and watch a movie and I can't do that on Netflix. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Thank you to Eero for supporting our podcast. For free overnight shipping, visit Eero.com and at checkout, select overnight shipping, then enter FOOL to make it free. We thank Eero for their support. Okay, so turning away from my midnight Netflix habits, uh, let's talk a little bit about specific banks. Um, and let's try and do this quickly because I believe there's some people waiting for the studio. Um, good news, everyone passed the stress test. That's really exciting. People are increasing dividends left and right. They're increasing share buybacks. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, and and the and the the one to watch there. So the stress test were in the second quarter. After the stress test, so long as the banks pass it, which they all did, they will generally be given to go ahead to increase their dividends and increase their share buybacks, and they all got that. Uh, the one that really, really saw an increase in the amount of capital that is going to be able to return to shareholders is Bank of America. And it's a dividend. It increases dividend by 60%. And it announced a $12 billion share buyback plan uh, that it will uh, execute over the next 12 months. And that is a really great thing for Bank of America because if you look at Bank of America's current market cap, it's that $12 billion equates to 5% of its market cap. So Bank of America will basically be buying back 5% of itself over the next 12 months. And even better is the fact that Bank of America's shares trade for a 2% discount to book value, which means that it'll basically be buying back a dollar book value, but it only has to pay 98 cents for that. So that'll be a very accretive deal. Um, for Bank of America shareholders. Yeah, this is actually a case where share buybacks make sense. Sometimes companies buy back shares and you're like, why? It doesn't make sense. Like, your shares are so expensive. What are you doing? This is a case where it super duper makes sense. Go Bank of America. Congratulations. Um, the other really exciting Bank of America news is that their efficiency ratio went down, which is, it doesn't sound like it's good, but it is good because it means that they're more efficient. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the main narrative about Bank of America since the crisis has been that its expenses have just been inordinately high as a result of all of this legal stuff that they've had to deal with from their purchase of Countrywide Financial, and they had all of these bad, they bought all these um, bad subprime mortgages onto their balance sheet and all these different things. Well, the efficiency ratio was in the 70s, 80% for a long time after the crisis. It is now down to 60%, and that's important for two reasons. Number one, because, and the efficiency ratio, just to remind uh, listeners, is the percent of revenue that a bank spends on uh, operating expenses. And so generally you want a lower efficiency ratio because that means there's, there's more money left over after covering expenses to go to shareholders, pay taxes, and do all those types of things. Well, 60% is Bank of America's actual announced target. So it has finally reached its target for the first time since the crisis. And, and going along with that, 60% is kind of the, the standard industry threshold that differentiates between banks that are considered to be uh, well-run and, and banks that are considered to be less well-run. Yeah, definitely. And so it's, it's really exciting because that was, like you said, a target that they were aiming to hit. They hit it. Um, and that is excellent. Sorry, I'm rushing us a little bit. I think that they're, they, they're trying to start another show and we're monopolizing the space. Um, 
But let's talk a little bit about Wells Fargo. I say, as I say, as as I'm trying to rush us out. Wells Fargo, um, how's Wells Fargo doing? You know, Wells Fargo is is doing well. Okay, Wells Fargo is a really well-run bank. But since that kind of that fake account scandal came out last September, they've had an increase in their expenses dealing with legal stuff. So they've actually seen this. Now, this has long been one of the most efficient banks in the country. And based on the efficiency ratio, and they have started to see their efficiency ratio increase, which is very uncharacteristic for Wells Wells Fargo. Um, so, so what they're doing is now they have started. They recently announced a new expense initiative where they're going to um, try to reduce their annual expenses by two billion dollars. And one of the ways they're going to do that is um, by uh, closing a whole bunch of branches. So between this year and next year, they are slated to close 450 branches, which decreases your operating costs. And and that sounds like a bad thing, you know, when you think about if you analogize it to kind of in the retail sector, like, uh, you know, like a Barnes Noble closing stores or, you know, a Sears closing stores or, or, or whatever it is. But in the bank industry, it's a little bit unique because so many people now bank online and use banking mobile apps. Um, that closing branches is actually a very effective way for, for, for banks to decrease their expenses without really impacting too much the customer experience because branch visits are so, you know, are so much lower nowadays because people are depositing their checks on their phone. So that is a good, uh, that is a good trend for, for Wells Fargo to now really kind of uh, get behind and, and participate in. Yeah, that's excellent. And, you know, just keep an eye on banks, keep an eye on all your stocks, really. Um, don't make rash decisions based on one earnings season. Like If your thesis was true last week, it's still true this week after earnings, probably, unless something major has happened or like they've, they've found out something horrible. But that hasn't really happened with any of the big banks this quarter, which is great. A lot less heartburn for, for all of us. Um, Thanks, Maxfield, for joining us. Uh, next week, listeners, I'm really excited. We're, Maxfield's going to be back on, and we're going to do what makes an ideal bank or something to that effect. So, if you have any questions that you want us to address, go ahead and shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thank you to Anne Henry, who has passed off the producer baton to Heather Horton. So thank you to both of our wonderful producers. Um, And thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone have a great week.